Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. I'm Arthur Snell. A major war is taking place on the European continent with Russia's invasion of Ukraine, bringing you a series of special episodes to help you understand the crisis as it unfolds. This is Doomsday Watch. Welcome back to Doomsday Watch. We hope you're finding these war bulletins valuable. A quick reminder that you can support our work on the crowdfunding app Patreon from as little as £3 per month. Just search Patreon Doomsday Watch or follow the link in the show notes. Hello and welcome to Doomsday Watch. Listeners to our sister podcast, The Bunker, will be familiar with Jason Pack, author of the fantastic book, Libya and the Global Enduring Disorder. Jason, as the book suggests, is a Libya expert, but he's also the senior analyst for emerging challenges at the NATO Defence College Foundation. And it's in that context that he's joining us today to talk about Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Jason, welcome. Nice to be back with you, Arthur. Jason, uh, as I put there in the introduction, uh, among various uh, affiliations you've got, you're working on uh, some of the NATO aspects of the current global enduring disorder. And in that context, I wanted to talk about NATO as it pertains to the current conflict in Ukraine. Now, a lot of commentators and a lot of uh, ordinary citizens here in NATO member countries seem to work under the assumption that if Russia makes any kind of uh, offensive operation against any part of NATO territory, NATO countries are automatically committed to waging war on Russia, the so-called Article 5 commitment. Now, could you help us unpick that a little? Is that correct? Is that true? I think it's important for people to contextualize that NATO is an international organization and it's a coordination mechanism. The UN is also an international organization and a coordination mechanism. We are all aware of the fact that the UN Charter says that territory cannot be acquired through war. So under the UN Charter, the annexation of Crimea is, of course, illegal because it's Ukrainian territory that was annexed by Russia. Did the UN do anything about it? No, because Russia is on the permanent member of the Security Council. NATO, of course, doesn't have Russia in it, but it's still a coordination mechanism. And yes, Article 5 states that an attack on the territory in North America or Europe, as well as any islands, as well as any maritime assets of NATO members, 
is to be considered an attack on all NATO members. But Article 5 also says, and most people don't realize, that if such an attack occurs, it should be referred to the Security Council at the UN. So NATO and the UN are joined together in many ways. And NATO also coordinates operations that don't have to do with NATO members being attacked. Keep in mind that NATO was the vehicle through which the no-fly zone over Libya in 2011 was coordinated, even though there had been no attack on a NATO member. So if the NATO members had wanted to decide that any attack on Ukraine was something that NATO would respond to, they could have used NATO to do that. A treaty is a piece of paper, and it's only as strong as the commitment of the signatories or those who are involved to enforce that treaty. And it's in this context that we really need to remember the 1994 Budapest Memorandum. Yeah. To my mind, this is the agreement that ends the Cold War period, just as Versailles is the treaty that ends World War I and the creation of the UN and the Bretton Woods institutions ends World War II. That is the same role that the 1994 Budapest Memorandum has towards the end of the Cold War. And what the 1994 Budapest Memorandum does is guarantees Ukrainian territorial integrity in exchange for the Ukrainians giving up the nuclear weapons that were on their territory. And Russia, the UK and US are signatories to that memorandum. And of course, when Ukrainian territorial integrity was violated via the annexation of Crimea in 2014, and then the ongoing war in the Donbass, none of the signatories, obviously not Russia, but neither the US nor UK, discharged their obligations under the 1994 Budapest Memorandum. So this is important to point out. If, for example, a stray missile lands on Polish territory and the various NATO member states choose to not invoke Article 5, then nothing happens. So thank you. I think that's a really important and helpful, you know, sort of wide-ranging response there. So as you've mentioned, you've got the 94 Budapest Memorandum. I think some people might say, oh, but that's not the same as NATO. NATO is at a different level. But what you seem to be saying is there is no difference. Ultimately, treaties are only as good as the willingness of countries to enforce them. So the last part is correct, but then there is a slight difference. So in the United States, we have a special category for something that is a treaty as opposed to a memorandum or a protocol or an executive order or a bilateral agreement. A treaty is ratified by the Senate and it's mentioned in the Constitution. Um, I believe that in the UK and in many European countries, Parliament ratify certain treaties. So they do have a an extra layer because then it has multiple branches of government who are vested in the thing. Whereas the 1994 Budapest Memorandum was done by the executives. In other words, the British executive and the American executive and the Russian executive were vested in it, but our legislatures were not. Yeah. But again, this is a distinction without a difference potentially because both require the willingness to be upheld. Yeah. Now, in practical terms, if we were going to come up with a realistic hypothetical scenario, so let's say, for example, perhaps accidentally or perhaps deliberately, Russia launches a missile at a military base 
inside a NATO country, perhaps it's a, a frontline state on the border with Ukraine, perhaps it's a base that is being used to channel uh, military support into Ukraine. What would happen? Because what would not happen, as, as I think you've explained very clearly, is that there would be some automatic mobilization of all the NATO's militaries. So what would happen in that case? What would NATO do under Article 5, under its existing protocols? So this is the $64,000 question. Um, I think more likely is they would want to be interdicting a convoy that was already in Ukrainian territory and they would miss slightly. Yeah. And the missile or artillery fire would then land in, say, Poland or one of the Baltic countries. Yeah. Um, What would happen in this eventuality is those states would say, say, Poland, we've been attacked. We would like to convene a special NATO session and ask for Article 5 to be invoked. And we only have one precedent for this happening from 1949 to the present. And this is when 9-11 happened in my hometown of New York. The United States asked NATO to consider the bombing of the World Trade Center and attack of the Pentagon as an attack that was covered by Article 5. And all of the members said that they would. And as a result, the response via invading Afghanistan was not only a NATO coordinated operation, but it was one which could be said to have operated under Article 5. However, if George W. Bush did not want to do it that way and he wanted to just have an American led intervention in Afghanistan and coordinate it through NATO, he could have said, well, I'm not invoking Article 5. The point is it's discretionary. It's up to the state that's attacked. And like anything, like the question of, hey, you owe me X amount of money, it doesn't matter how many contracts or pieces of paper, so long as these things are not enforceable by a higher authority. And in the case of NATO, there is no higher authority. It requires the political will of the member states and of the alliance. Yeah. So in in the case study we've got here, you know, like all hypotheticals, we, we can overextend this. But I think this is worth exploring just for a couple more minutes. A case study, an accidental Russian strike, which is aimed at something in Western Ukraine, actually drifts over the border into Poland. Perhaps it kills some civilians, tragically. Poland, which has, of course, taken a very firm and one might say, you know, upstanding approach on this specific question of Russia's aggression in Ukraine, uh, requests that NATO treats this as an attack and requests that all other NATO countries treat it as an attack on themselves. And then the debate begins. And maybe in this hypothetical scenario, Hungary, which we know to, you know, have a pro-Russian leaning, says, yeah, but this was accidental. It's clear that Russia never meant to attack Poland. Uh, Maybe some other country, which I'm, I'm not going to speculate on, but another NATO member also decides that they're not quite comfortable with this. Perhaps the, the implications are, are too worrying. What would then happen? Would NATO be unable to respond or could it respond without those members who've decided not to join in? It's a pretty complex situation because, as we pointed out, nothing magically happens at that moment, right? I think that it's important to point out for the listeners that NATO is a coordination mechanism. And that's what it really excels at. It's not good at generating political will. Your listeners may be aware of the hashtag, hashtag don't die for the Donbass, hashtag do die for the Suvaki Gap. And 
I personally believe that the Donbass and Ukraine in general is the geostrategically most important part of the world. I would argue it always has been. In 1904, the inventor of geostrategy, Halford Mackinder, wrote that Ukraine is the cockpit of history and that it is the fulcrum upon which the geostrategic moment of the Eurasian landmass rests. And I've always believed that. And I've written to that effect in the New York Times and Washington Post and elsewhere. But you might say, well, it's not in a NATO member state, so we shouldn't be, you know, defending the Donbass. Hashtag don't die for the Donbass. But the Suvaki Gap, and that's the region of territory that separates mainland Russia from the Kaliningrad enclave. You know, you need to go through a little bit of Poland and uh, Lithuania and Latvia to get to the other part of Russia that's not connected. Yeah. So should we hashtag die for the Suvaki Gap, but we shouldn't for the Donbass? These are questions of political will. NATO has this very special position that this is the thing that keeps us safe. This is the body that prevents us from nuclear war and keeps a, pace, a peaceful Europe from going back to the ravages of World War One and Two, And that is what the magic is, is that it has built up something in the relationship between peoples and their governments and coordination. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. What I'm getting out of this discussion, Jason, is that much of this issue is actually about what the other side believes you might be prepared to do as much as what the rules of a particular treaty or an organization say you will do. And of course, that takes us to this idea of game playing. Now, it's not accidental that we're having a conversation about this. In 2018, you were the world doubles backgammon champion and perhaps uh, of even more direct relevance, you recently published an article in Foreign Policy magazine called It's Time to Beat Putin at Poker and Call His Bluff. And it's sometimes been said of Putin that he's a poker player, not a chess player. And even people who aren't very familiar with those two games can probably think about the difference between those two games. So let's talk about this. Let's talk about what is going on when two strategic opponents face each other off and what can we learn from the world of game theory, of game playing, of gambling, of poker, maybe backgammon also, that, that helps us to understand this conflict? I think the answer is a lot. Um, diplomacy and war have always been understood as games. Chess in ancient Persia was seen as a preparation for war. Noblemen throughout the Middle Ages, as well as the early modern period, looked at hunting as a classical game to mirror war. Yeah. 
I would argue that today's conflicts are more like poker than they are like hunting or like chess. But our leaders are great leaders, whether they are Theodore Roosevelt or Franklin Delano Roosevelt or Asquith or Lloyd George or Churchill. They understood that confronting an adversary is an iterative contest. Each interaction is not ex nihilo. You establish a persona. You come to understand your opponent's persona. You make a move now. You compromise now, but you make clear your red line exists there. But then when that red line comes, you have to enforce it. If you don't enforce it, your credibility is entirely lost. And the problem is that we in the West are not on a great track record of enforcing our red lines as well as our treaty and memoranda obligations. Everyone will remember the red line over Syria. Obama said, if chemical weapons were used, the United States would do something. Chemical weapons were used, we did nothing. Yeah. We then made very clear that the acquisition of territory by force in Europe would not stand. But then when it happened in 2014, the sanctions were pretty limp. And when that war in the Donbass continued from 2014 onwards, there were various treaties in Minsk I and Minsk II, and we didn't really do anything. Trump famously played politics with the arming of Ukraine with Stinger missiles, trying to get dirt on Hunter Biden for his election campaign, leading to his first impeachment. So the game theory aspect here is Putin has seen, so long as he pushes incrementally, we bend, not break. Oh, and I forgot to go back to Georgia in 2008 when pieces of Georgia were gobbled up in South Ossetia. Um, So he had every reason to think, I've gobbled a little by little by little and broken the boundaries. Maybe I can gobble some more with some subterfuge. I think that we needed to make extremely clear in December, January, and early February, Nord Stream 2 would be turned off. The Germans and Americans and British would have exactly the same position. But we didn't do that because Olaf Scholz said, well, I don't know if we're going to turn Nord Stream 2 off. And I don't want the Baltics to re-export German arms. And that sent a horrible signal. And to insert the game playing here, if let's say your opponent bluffs you and you fold, and then in the very next hand, he raises really, really big and you fold, he has every reason to think later on down the line, you're going to fold. So it happened that fortunately, we didn't fold over the full-scale invasion of Ukraine. That was the straw that broke the camel's back. And the alliance is more united now than it was previously. But we haven't re-raised. And I want us to, to bluff Putin back. I'd like us to have cyber offensive. Like all of a sudden the lights go off for two hours in St. Petersburg. And we say, if you don't do X, the lights are going to be off in Petersburg and Moscow for two days. There's a whole range of things that we could do that if you introduce this game playing mindset, um, Churchill and Roosevelt surprised Hitler all the time, and Stalin was amazing at this, with big counteroffensives, keeping him on his guard. And we are much more reactive these days, and I think it's because we lack strategic vision. One possible uh, sort of counterargument to that, and maybe this is, it may be a limitation of the gambling analogy, is obviously, uh, you know, as a gambler, you, you've got a certain pot that you might or might not be willing to bet and someone may feel they have deeper pockets than others. 
in some respects, that analogy works. You know, clearly, NATO countries include some of the world's biggest economies, include you know vast military resources, and certainly, if you combine them, far outstripping what Russia has. On the other hand, Russia has a willingness, as we've already seen in the early days of this conflict, to lose maybe ten or fifteen thousand troops in battle with a combination of disinformation and and uh, sort of autocratic practices, it can limit the fallout from that to some extent. And it may be that Russia is willing to uh, risk uh, much greater losses than, frankly, the very comfortable Western and Central European lifestyles are, are willing to stomach on our side. So is is that possibly where the analogy falls down, that it's not just about your resources, the size of your pot, but it's about actually psychological resilience. And, and that may not be comparable. Well, I would say that's where the gaming allergy re- really comes into its own. No matter how wealthy you are, how deep your stack, it's not a question of the pot, but your own personal stack. Yeah. So we need a gambler's resolve here. And I, I believe that whether it's Gibbon or Ibn Khaldun, it's been shown that the more you're on top, the more you're the imperial power, you lose that resolve, right? Yes. I think that in America, we've seen a trend from Reagan to Clinton to Obama to W and certainly now Trump and Biden. We're not willing to really put our key interests on the line. And that allows a weaker opponent who is willing to play all his chips to push us around. And that's why it's important to my mind to be willing to do things like these cyber offensives. Because Putin is already doing everything to win. He is on the back foot. He never thought he was going to have to withdraw from Kiev. He thought the city would fall in a few days. Now he's withdrawn from Kiev. He's scrambling. This like, oh, you know, we're just going to pivot to the east and retaking, you know, the Donbass with some like large tank operations. This isn't where he wanted to be. He's on the back foot. Now is the time to really catch him further off guard. So the reality of it, Arthur, is we are at war with Russia, both America and Britain and NATO as an alliance. It's important to keep in mind that in the post-World War II period, many of the most significant wars have not been declared wars. The U.S. didn't declare a war on Iraq or Vietnam. We certainly didn't declare a war to do the NATO no-fly zone over Libya. And we've been countering Russian aggression in theory over Syria and Ukraine for many years already now. So this is just a new phase in our containment of Russian expansionism and aggression. And it requires us to be creative and to think outside of the box in how we're going to prosecute these war aims. We did these very good swift code sanctions, but we could have done more. We didn't do a swift code sanction against every entity in Russia, just against the central bank and certain other banks, but not every Russian business was swift coded. I would say the one thing we know that we shouldn't be doing, although we shouldn't say publicly not to do it, is the no-fly zone. And I'm not an advocate of a no-fly zone. Yeah. So why is that? Because in some ways, you know, you've talked very firmly about how uh, there should be a more forward-leaning approach. So what is it we should do and why, why should it not be a no-fly zone? So I'll tell you why I don't support a no-fly zone. And I do think that that is a bridge too far. So any action that you do has escalatory risks. And this is, again, why the poker analogy is important and doubling and redoubling and backgammon. 
as soon as you raise, there's a logic for the opponent to potentially re-raise if he gets a better card or if he wants to re-bluff you. Raising causes escalatory pressures. The financial sanctions that we engaged in causes escalatory pressures, not only for conventional things on the ground in Ukraine, but a potential cyber attack that Putin might want to do. Finns and Swedes are, you know, stockpiling food and electric generators because they have every reason to believe that if they apply for NATO membership, there will be cyber attacks and power outages in their countries because that happened in the Baltics. However, certain things have more escalatory pressure than other things. And this has to do with the optics, but it also has to do with the hardcore strategic risks. The one thing that I believe that's being discussed and Zelensky advocates for that has too much escalatory risks is a no-fly zone. What does it mean? It means American and British and French fighter jets going over Ukraine and shooting down Russian planes. But then what happens when our jets are hit by anti-aircraft barriers that are inside Russia? Because a lot of the Russian anti-aircraft, which patrols Ukrainian airspace, is based in Russia. Are we then going to bomb inside Russian territory? That is an escalatory risk, which is far too great for me. I don't believe having the lights go out in St. Petersburg for two hours presents that escalatory risk. In fact, it makes Putin look bad to his own people, just like the sanctions do. Yeah. And and you mentioned the, the cyber attack thing a few times. It certainly feels as if that would be something that uh, it, it one it, it it has it's sort of implausible deniability if you know what I mean you know it's right. it's not the same as as uniformed ar- armies albeit everyone would know who was behind it uh, and it has that advantage that the population would know if the TV went off or the internet went down or, or the electricity or whatever so in a way then why why is this not happening what what's your take on that it's depressing the more I reflect on it I think a lot of our leaders don't have gumption. And I know it's condescending the way that a lot of American news and particularly American television talks about the Europeans and herding the cats and we need to get them on board. But essentially, that's what's played out. America was out in front of this when we were sharing intelligence in January and February. And many Europeans, even Zelensky, were saying, oh, he won't invade. The American intelligence is wrong. But the Americans were right. And then when they realized they were wrong, the Europeans, particularly the Germans, did a U-turn right? Yep. As for cyber, potentially it's being discussed, right? Maybe some of the less hawkish members say, oh, no, no, we don't want to do this. And then the response should be, I'm sorry, buddy, it's war. If we had just done this sooner, we'd never be in this mess. It's a test of wills. It's not a PhD thesis. You just need to have the political will to do it. And these cyber attacks, there is no doctrine. But I can do psychology here. Putin is really on the back foot. He needs a win by May 9th, which is the day that they celebrate victory in Europe Day, you know, for the great patriotic war in Russia. If he had the ability to do cyber attacks that would give him an edge, he would have done them already. Yeah. If he could have done something, he wouldn't be holding it in reserve. Ipso facto, if we make the lights go out in St. Petersburg or we have other things that screw with his command and control for the offensive in the Donbass, it's not like all of a sudden he's going to make the computer systems all go haywire in Virginia. Because if he could have, he would have done it already. That That is just manifest, right? 
So I will be really disappointed if we have cyber tools that could harm his warfighting capacity. And we're like, well, we're not deploying them because we have a phased approach. And I want to end by having your listeners think about Clausewitz. Clausewitz is famous for saying, of course, that war is politics by other means. Yeah. There are two things that people don't realize. He also argues that politics is war by other means and that the very nature of all military and diplomatic confrontations is towards ever greater concentration of forces. Yeah. The very nature, and this is the same in gambling, you need to be willing when you have an advantage to press it. We need to be willing to concentrate our forces, catch the Russians off guard, and to have a huge victory. Now that he's on the back foot, we should do it now. Because if he loses big time in the Donbass, then in the famous phrase of British prime ministers, he will have to reevaluate his position. It seems to me that that is a fantastic place to end this wide-ranging and challenging discussion. It's given me a lot of food for thought, and I'm sure it will for our listeners. Jason, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Just to remind people, Jason's article is in Foreign Policy magazine. Uh, It's time to beat Putin at poker and call his bluff. Jason, thank you. Thank you. We hope you find these war bulletins valuable amongst the huge amount of information out there. So don't forget to subscribe and help spread the word by rating us five stars on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any other app that has ratings. And if you really like the show, you can support us on the crowdfunding app Patreon. You'll get the shows early, ad-free, and help shape future episodes, all from as little as £3 per month. Just search Patreon Doomsday Watch or follow the link in the show notes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.